Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. It rained so bad in L.A. this past weekend. It reminded me of growing up back east. And what's amazing is when L.A., I live in Burbank, and it's not built for rain. So the rain is just the rain is just running down the streets. I ended up getting soaked. In Studio City, which is like 15, 15 minutes away from me, there was an actual sinkhole that opened up. Two cars fell in, and they have videotape of it. It was very scary. One lady climbed out. She was on top of her car. Thank God she got saved. And then now, I was driving around earlier today, and what happens in L.A. when it rains is, first of all, to start, L.A.'s roads are crappy. I mean, Burbank's a nice area, but it seems like the roads are always under construction. Everywhere in L.A., Place roads are under construction. But after a rain, it's just amazing because there are so many damn potholes. It's like your tires are playing like a version of whack-a-mole. So I have to drive around later today. I have to go take care of some stuff. And I'm not looking forward to it. But anyway, I'll be moving in uh, three months. So I won't be dealing with this stuff. I reached out to this gentleman. And uh, he's a drummer. I don't know what it is. It's pretty much about. Uh, and he's was part of an iconic trio. You know, I mean, he's he's my age. And uh, I'm great. I'm glad to have him, I guess. Hey. Hi, Steve. Hey, man. So, so... Because it it came down, this rain on Friday was years out here. So you're moving because it rained? No, I planned not because of the rain. Why? Too crowded. I just did different things. You know, I know everyone says everyone says about that, but you know, it's just it's getting crowded. I've been out here for 15 years. It's time for a change, Jim. It's time for a change. Selfie. I think I'd stand on the hill and try to get hit by lightning. <laughs> It's, it's, it's my roots. I got to get back. I haven't been there for a long time. Well, you're from the East I go to visit. I'm not going to move back to Long Island, though. I'll tell you that. Well, oh, buddy. Uh, we'll see. Well, you know what? If, 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 you, if you're going, I hate life. I hate life. You know, I'm coming back. Once it goes back and then, you know, you know, says how great it is. Cold. And the girls don't look like they... But I have a beautiful girlfriend. So, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm happy uh, there. I'm your buddy. I'm just trying to help you before you do something that you regret. I'll talk to you. I was reading. You, as a young kid, how did, how did you get into that as a young kid? What what gravitated you towards jazz? There were records I could get my hand on, uh, my hands on and my already Shaw. And they weren't really music people. That was just going to have. And I had a couple of older cousins who had like the Rolling Stones, Yes, or uh, Pink Floyd. Or, like I just took whatever record from Long Island. Someone had that. And I just kind of took whatever record drum kit, you know. When did you get your drum kit? And what, what, as kids, you know, we all pretty much go through kid. Sure, what, sure. What gravitated you towards the drums? Because I always knew you would be a drummer. I mean, was it something you saw? That drum, like, get that little kit. Because I can imagine, a little, you know, when we're little kids, we have such a short attention yeah. span that we don't really. Well, I was a little bit older, maybe 12, 13. I played trumpet in school band, but I wanted to play the drums, but they already had 100. But what it was, I, I always liked. In music, I was young to have the you know Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment, but whatever shows were on, whether it was rock concert or midnight special, would always watch it. And any any rock music, I, I, I immediately hooked on rockabilly or jazz or the blues or anything cool. I, and the drums, I thought I could do it. Like I saw someone knew I really couldn't do that, but the drums, I thought I could sticks after bothering everyone and a and, and a practice pad that was would bang along with anything that was on the radio or on the steady enough about it, earn a little bit of money. Uh, you know, it never had to tell me to practice. That's the thing. A person you've ever met in your life, I'm sure the same with you, their kid's a drummer. You can play the drums. 
Yeah, I see him banging away in his crib, and uh, you know, he, the minute you have to tell them to practice, you know, they're not going to. So they never have to tell me to practice. I would do it on my own. Did you have an idea of how you would sit there and eventually turn this into a career, or were you just you just wanted, you weren't sure what you were going to do with your life, or I mean, how to get your career? Well, I just knew that I wanted to do it some way, and um, uh, the rocker being one, I've known Brian too, but I've known Lee since I've been a guy like me that played the bass. So we would, hours really, um, a lot, a lot of hours of just him playing the band. Uh, and you spin that off into the school dance or someone's having a party. I just wanted to be in on some, we became the guys that hustled it up, like a dance that paid a little bit of money. Uh, I remember playing church, you know, uh, dancers, five bucks and pays the band. Like, I just wanted to do it on any level. It was always like that. I was always the guy in the band. And uh, he was with me and uh, uh, Brian, we always knew. He was a couple years matter, but like when you're 13 and someone's 15, years are big, you know. Um, and he was always good, the best guy around town. And kind of around the same time, and said, "Let's try to uh, all good right away." There was a certain we really knew we were on. So you're on to something now. You know, rockabilly wasn't. So what what did you guys decide to do? I mean, when and you, now you had some different names. Oh, we were the Tomcats. We were the. Um, uh, we would just use different names this time, um, and we just um, uh, and you got there through the back door through say the Stones uh, doing covers of Eddie Cochran songs. The Who's and I, the Blind Faith album, Eric Clapton, and they covered Buddy Holly a bit. You know, you see a Beatles record and you see the writer's credit is Who's E Cochran and Who's you know, and you do the homework. When I found it, it was we all knew that it was really cool. I knew I could play it. I, I related to the thing, which I had studied. You know, we all took you know, lessons. Jazz. It had a swing, but it also rocked, and it had a fashion, and it had a, everything was And we just loved it right away. And uh, um, five nights a week, four sets a night. So we knew once or twice a month we'd go into the city and try to get uh, a place, hoping there'd be some record company kind of there. But we just following. I mean, you know, because it was different. I mean, were people, you know, I mean, you speak. I mean, that's you know, and you're that's that's a very busy schedule. Were people, or did it take a while for you guys to get hot? I mean, what was the well, ultimate? Deal? It took a little while, but not. We um we couldn't. What we used to do, we used to play Tuesday through Saturday, and if they had a Long Island, they had in all the big rock clubs, this kind of thing. And we wanted to get into the established alternative. We wanted to get, make, even though you didn't quite know what it was, like you wanted to be mainstream. We never, till this day, wanted. You know, we wanted to be the um, to be mainstream. Um, it was they had seen punk rock, they had seen rock. It was okay to walk around <laughs> or something, but you know, baggy pants and pointy shoes. You know, was anything like us before? So we did clubs. It's, I would think there's a couple of embarrassed uh, ex-club bookers out there right. somewhere. <laughs> um, and then we uh, booked our own gigs at these little, um, that weren't on the music scene. And we would pack, you know, a couple hundred kids into these tiny bars. And they weren't rockabilly. They, they were regular kids. Right? Where people looked in 1970, you know. Um, and we were the only three guys that looked this way. There was a cool vibe around it. And um, uh, we had a night. And uh, we played in Belmore, we played in Massapequa, it was right out of Boogie Nights, like uh, way out on Long Island, like a swingers. And, and we did it for like a year. And uh, and we loved doing it. We put all the equipment in my car and we 
Presley lived in Memphis in the 50s, you know, <laughs> all together and, you know, four o'clock in the morning after the gig and sleeping late and going to thrift stores and life. And we, I, it was a very happy time, actually. Now, were you going to your moniker back then and how did you end up getting this, this name that, you know, stuck? Um, that's, that's kind of a good question because rockabilly type world who nicknamed themselves. <laughs> Some guy introduced himself as Hot Rod Pete. Well, who calls you hot? For me, my... My dad was big Jim and a big guy, and I was always kind of skinny, so I was always that. And then when Rockabilly came along, it was good. It was a built-in nickname on, uh, I think it's on the first or second Gene Vincent album. Alep and Jumping Jack Neal, the bass player, Bebop. So mine was really built in. It it, it was already there. So you're... Phantom oh, was made up in England. In fact, you know, we had to come up with something. That one somehow stuck. I like the Phantom. Jim was always there. Now, how how did you how did you end New York to England? I mean, because it was it was pretty quickly after you guys started, right? Probably a year, year and a half. Um, and nineteen years old. I just uh, I turned nineteen, and Lee was still eighteen. He's a few months behind me. He's August. Well, we really wanted to um, to be in a scene in England, and you'd see there was a punk rock scene. There was one time there was an article of older kind of. We would call them greasers, I guess, but there was a whole scene of it. Creepers and um, had a whole scene that nothing at all. We were the only three guys that I knew. There was a couple of times, but they were. Um, I I didn't know of any scene, and we wanted we wanted to uh, to experience some type of scene, and we thought people and get a record, and we didn't really think it out very well. It's not really that much money, and very quickly we're we're um, homeless. You're homeless, and what, I mean, what were you guys just were you sleeping in? A, I mean, where were you staying? Times outside, and uh, we would, you know, it, it, it was a couple of those like squad hats you could somehow hear about, gravitate there, stake out a corner. And we had a couple of people that we could couch surf, and you know, really we would, um, we somehow got through it, and we're kind of on our way. And just anything we could hear about other people's gigs, you could get in for free. And, Really, after a few months, we were about to go home. We looked at the right amount of doors where someone said, okay, it could be at this gig on a pub, a bill, third on the bill, go on at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And we're just waiting for that chance. And, you know, really, at the end of the day, I don't think anything would happen if we weren't good at it. We take you so far. You know, you have to kind of make your own. We had met through being on parties and kicking around. We had met a scene, you know, people like Lemmy, Chrissy Hine was there. Uh, Locke, just people who are still my friends, really, Captain Sensible, who were the people, and they came to the gigs, like, we better go see these. <laughs> so we went, we were we were very good at it, and word kind of, you know, you know we slept on a better class of couch for a little while, and, you know. Almost, and just jumping around, what did you do with your your gear? I mean, you can't take well, them. Well, some of it we carried around, to be honest with you, the base. We carried those kind of squat houses that somehow we managed to stash. We did... For a while, carry the stuff around with us. You know, who knew someone whose mother was from England, and they let us use a closet and kind of would go for a few days and then come back when clothes. Um, you know, it it really was a rough lifestyle. But again, when you're nice, there's no alternative. So, and at that point, we were kind of gigs, even if it was just to make enough money to get a one. You had to keep at it a little bit from survival. So you're keeping at it. Some momentum. People are starting to recognize you when that things are on the upswing when do you sit there and go okay well after the first you know 10 kind of shows of opening up for people and in england there was a um uh they had the music was enemy melody maker record mirror sand like all of the it, it was very um 
do a couple of gigs like that, a few famous people turn Chrissy Hine, the guys from the Pistols, Schultz, um, like all the people who were like very much of the time back then. Well, there's this band from New York, and well, we yeah, we saw those guys at a party. Well, they're playing, and they're, so word kind of spread quickly. You get a couple of mentions in the music press. You're able to get another gig. Spend, you know, we got it you on know, during that week. We managed to do four or five shows, and it was, you know, starting a little bit of a hipster thing to have us open up. So we opened up for a lot of. Uh, one of those times, the Rolling Stones heard about it, and they were always very hip, smart guys, and we were the opening act. So the Stones show up, you guys are sitting there, and everyone knows the Stones. Well, the audience, I mean, when they walk in, it must well, have been better. heard bedlam. that they might come in, or, you know, they just don't turn up. I guess maybe someone from their office called up and said, make sure there's a table, and the guys just don't randomly turn up. So I think they lost that they were going to be there, and, you know, Really, it was a gig. You can't really rely on play anyway. And things were a little bit happening, so we knew that every... We knew a lot of this stuff instinctively. When you're 19 and trying to get beer, you know, like, uh, so contrived in your thoughts. But we instinctively had a... And so we went and we played our regular show, stood on the drum at the end, you know, all of that stuff, our show. And you were taken to the Rolling Stones table. And they loved it. They really genuinely liked it. And, um... Six months previous, you were, you know, living in Massachusetts. You're, you know, welcomed to be in there. They wanted us to sign on their label, and we met with them a few times. And to the two of those guys, let alone the five of them all in one way, we met with each of them individually and have a couple. That's why we're talking, right? To plug my book. Yeah, we'll plug your book. I, I eat tonight. I love drummers, so I hit you up. Oh, I, I gotta I, get my book, man. The Stray right. Cat Struts on St. Martin's Press just came out. Okay. We're in there. And uh, so I, we, we were unable to Stone's label, but they, um, uh, um, they really could be friendly, and uh, we made, we wished it, and it was a, it was a success in um, England and American record deal yet, even though we are Americans. Um, and the Stones went on tour in the States, had an opening act on a bunch of the shows, and um, a little bit daunting, because no one had heard of us yet. Maybe. Yeah, I'm saying, what's thing? You guys are playing clubs. And then, you know, you're going on tour news. What's going on through your guys' minds? I mean, I mean, it's true when you're younger, you have no fear. You know, you don't sit. But, I mean, what was going through your guys' minds when you sat there? We're opening for the Stones to more people than we've ever... Well, you knew it had to be good, you know, like it, like it always has to be good. Between um, making the record and when the time to play a lot in, in Europe and... With, played at that point we were doing theaters and we had um and all that so the amount of people thing but for us it was it was the first time in a little while that we knew even the first single because in the states the record this is pre-mtv so really seen anything like us and they're there to see the rolling stones or auditorium or whatever you know and like, um so when we take people are there to see the rolling stones and we go out there with two amps, a boy suit, and, you know, they didn't know what it was, but it was. It was a completely foreign thing. We hadn't like, to expose you. Um, so, but we kind of were nights. Uh, Mick Jagger came out and announced us. He's supposed to show show yourself before your gig, right? You had luck. So for him to go on stage before they went on, dude, really cool. And um, uh, and a few nights he didn't. So it's like, um, you know, we used to say it's like opening a 
clam, you know, bit and turn. And every night by the end of the night, we never had to stop and never got bottled or anything like that. Because we got through, we knew how to do it. And it's really, if you stop and think for, for two seconds, it's the most influenced by the Beatles or the Stones or the, we went to the source. We So I think every audience who's there to say knowledge of the blues or you know rock and roll on some level and oh, shut up let's check and we always got them scaled down drum set well it, we always had a little bit of a concept again not so panically was that we wanted to be completely different we wanted to have a band on some old record sleeves again it's pre-internet pre-beation in any way than like go to an old record store and hopefully they they also not just maybe a greatest hits and they didn't have this stuff at Sam Goody you know yeah and there was a few blurry photographs on these things and you could see well the drum maybe someone uh, uh um, had an old film of you know like a rebroadcast of American bandstand so you, you knew kind of what the basic layout of the gear was but no one and then on top of that no one ever put the drums at the front of the stage we just it kind of happened organically like I so said we did so many gigs sets that maybe on the second set over here okay well on the third set we'll move them onto this and you know on that side of the stage because I'm left-handed so that would mean accessible so Brian would stand on top of the it, it was all an organic kind of trial and error way and then when we we hit on okay we got it that's cool let's go with that and uh, time and the space and the I think if you were doing every night at CV for, for somebody cool to be there you wouldn't have had that freedom on Long Island and all for you know for all that time. Now, when you your record was out in England, but it wasn't out over here, right? We had a few um, those songs were already hit songs, so we kind of was like, and we were a little bit starting to get, but we we unless you crack it in the states, you're not really cracking it at all, to be honest. I mean, you could have a clap. We wanted to be like the Stones or whoever it was. We didn't want to wanted to be in the mainstream, and we knew that this. This one, you know, uh, just really and concentrate and, you know, while partying, of course, the whole way forward. Now, when did you sit there and get that thing when you came to the States? I mean, you guys blew up, you know, I mean, everyone I know had albums and it was, it was a, it was a exciting thing to do when you, yeah. you didn't want to get an album. And if you bought an album and three of the songs were good and the rest sunny, when did you guys get to come to the States? What happened that you started getting the pop? Well, um. A couple of things all happened. Uh, again, I don't know if it can happen this way again, or um, it was a very organic thing. I keep using that word, but like a very natural. Uh, MTV was a big part of it, I think. Um, and uh, MTV, when they launched, believe it or not, um, they needed content. They needed videos. And the Stray Cats, we had made one or maybe two videos in England. Used to make them, and and they were done by Julian Temple, who's a big film director guy. He was he was younger, he was a fan, and he did the... Um, um, because you couldn't be everywhere at once kind of thing. Like, you couldn't be in France if the record was happening there, and also be in Sweden for the Saturday. Because a, a lot of these places had, like, afternoon shows kind of like American Bandstand every Saturday kind of thing um, and you couldn't be in all the places at once so they would show a video in place of the band being there maybe the next week you'd go there and you'd mime along you'd do the American Bandstand of Germany and France and um, so 
when MTV started, that was 24-7 videos. It's a pretty revolutionary idea. Um, they needed videos. And I guess somehow they dredged them up and they found, found hours. And that led um, to a little bit of awareness. Like if you're in your, just imagine being in... Uh, uh, you know, Oregon or upstate New York or something in 1981, you come home from school and you turn on the TV and like you're getting, okay, I've heard of that band, i heard of that band, and then the Stray Cats come on and it's totally different than anything else. Um, so that had an impact and that caused maybe a couple radio stations to play it and then and then the uh, an American label who really wasn't our other, our European label, guy, a guy from EMI came in and kind of got it and we had come to L.A., and without really knowing it, we had a cult following. There was a radio station that was playing us, and we didn't even really know it, and I don't even remember how we got here and all that, but we came uh, and to do a show at the Roxy. And it just before we knew it, we were doing five shows at the Roxy, a matinee and an evening show. And... Um, at that point, the handwriting was on the wall. Okay, let's come to the States. Let's be back here. You know, there's someone who played at the Roxy. They took me to the Rainbow. I met a waitress. And, you know, like it was, <laughs> I'm not leaving. <laughs> yeah. so, um, uh, so, then, um, so then we stayed in the States a little bit. And, and they released the record, which was a compilation of the two records that we had already done in England. We put a couple new tracks on it. Um, but even still, this would have been 1982. Um, Radio wasn't really as broad-minded. Like it was, MTV was pretty much, I think, for a lot of people, not just us, um, was what was a big factor. And then our willingness to go and do, you know, five months on the road, eleven shows in a row, just keep going and you know, put the work in. Well, go to every town and do every gig, and and then do interviews in the daytime, and go to the local TV station, and then do the gig at night, and then party with the locals, and wake up five in the morning, and get on the butt, like, we were willing to do it. Well, you know, it's, you know, it's amazing is that, you know, you said about, you know, you're willing to do the work and stuff like that, and talking about MTV, I was flipping around last night, and on CNN, they were replaying that series called The 80s, and they, right. were, they were talking about when MTV started, it was mostly a lot of bands from England, and you guys were... From America, and you know, back then, you know, you wanted to see a band from America, and I think that helped too. That people were like, "All right, this is great. They're 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 guys like us." Yeah, that's the thing is that, um, and that was part of our original manifesto from a few years before that. Back in uh, you know, Massapequa was we wanted to have this music known. It's American music. You know, Carl Perkins is American. Elvis Presley is American. Gene Vincent, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, they're Americans, right? And and there wouldn't be a Beatles or a Rolling Stones without these guys. And not being snotty about it, Paul McCartney would be the first one to tell you that. And Jeff Beck and Keith Richard, they wanted to tell people that, you know? It didn't come from England. Um, but I think kids want to hear... Uh, I think they want the messenger to look like them, you know. So we were young guys playing this music, but that was part of our, um, uh, like, original goal was to get this music known again. Like, a lot of those old Rockabilly cats, they were so happy when we started doing this that they reached out to us. Like, 
Carl Perkins is calling us to congratulate us and thank you boys for keeping this music alive, you know? And for us, that was a main thing because we loved these guys and loved the, loved the original rock and rollers. And um, then to meet them, you know, it was cool to meet The Clash and the, you know, Sex Pistols and you know, hang out and party with, you know, the Pretenders. But like, when Carl Perkins wants to get in touch, that's real. And we, we, we loved it. And that was really when... Uh, part of it that came later that we felt was a big success that like we put kind of rockabilly back in the dictionary a little bit you know well, and um what was yeah it? something that we were very proud of well i was gonna also say what i mean you guys you had your unique uh style of dress and everything like that what is it like when you were young guys and there's people you know your age because I'm, I'm, I'm i think i'm two years younger than you that you know people started copping your look. People started doing that with their hair. What's that like when you're a performer and it must have been a very cool feeling to sit there and go, wow, we're really making a imprint because, you know, people were dressing different all of a sudden, you know? You guys, you know, you did like the sleeveless shirts and stuff like that. No one was doing that except tank tops. I mean, what was that like for you guys and how did you find your your fashion? I mean, where would you get your clothes at? Well, I know now I'm a little bit regretful. I see, you know, we... <laughs> We found these fantastic gabardine shirts and cowboy shirts, cut the sleeves off of them. It was, without thinking twice, it's like mustache on the Mona Lisa. But like, and it, really, we 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 loved, and that's part of the whole thing is is really the combination of influences, kind of with music or with fashion. We uh, we you know looked at the old record sleeves, and you could track down a couple of old pictures of, and like in the fifties. Not everyone wore pink peg pants. That was Elvis wore pink peg pants, you know? And, like, not everyone wore black and white shoes. That was, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis that did that. It wasn't the average guy. Um, so we, we, we loved the fashion, but we also liked the clash and the Sex Pistols. And I, so we said, well, what if you would wear baggy pants and, like, Elvis, pink peg pants, and then put a spiky belt like Sid Vicious has? You know, like, we tried to combine everything because we liked liked everything and again there was an an innate sense of knowing that you have to in some way be current and combine things like if you just sound like a dusty old record and kind of dress like your uncle from the 50s it really was not it's i didn't want to do that first of all but um i i like to rock out we like to turn it up and you know crank it up a little bit so we were influenced by you know the music and the fashion of a few things just Combining the whole thing, and I think in that process we a little bit invented a new, like a new style, you know, music and fashion. I think. Well, the musical, you know, the musically wise, you know, I mean, as I said, we all, everyone had that album, and uh, I still use the term album. I even, even when I talk about cassettes and CDs, I still use album because I just it's stuck in your your mindset. Yeah. But, yeah, um, I mean, record is an album. It's just the, yeah, how you yeah. Now, exactly. so what was it like though when you know you you you. you been busting your ass you've been going on the road you're touring and then your album and mtv starts playing your album just starts starting bigger and bigger i mean you guys i believe hit number two on the on the billboard i mean what is that like for a you're still young guys and you as you said not too far before that you were in flop houses in england it wasn't that much of a big time what is what goes through your mind and how do you adjust to that because all and because because you guys have a different look. It's not like if you're a guitarist who's a singer-songwriter and you go to a restaurant, someone might just think, hey, that guy looks like Dan Fogelberg. You know what I mean? You yeah. guys have a different look. You're, you're, you know, you guys have a big following. 
how does your life start changing? And, and do you have any private time once you guys start hitting it? I mean, you must have been recognized everywhere. Yeah, which is what we want. I mean, I did anyway. You know, um, it, again, it's all in the moment and it's all happening at once. We didn't really take a break for five, six years. And, and um, it was really what we wanted. We wanted to, to you know, preach the gospel of rockabilly. We, uh, uh, so, I mean, it's, you know, certain gratification. I think when you're older, you kind of appreciate it more now. But there was, you know, the you know, mannequins at Macy's had like little pompadours and bowling shirts for a little while there, you know. Like it really became a, um, a, uh, a pop culture moment. It really did. I, 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 I kind of think now, at the time, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, word it all because you're partying and just. I liked going out, so I would go to nightclubs, and I, I, I married Britt Eklund, who we were very much in love and still are, and that added to the whole kind of you know, craziness of it. Um, um, but at the end of it, we really. Every night we kind of had that moment between the three of us that we would like look at each other and know that we said we were going to do this. Everyone thought we were crazy, but we believed in it. And here it is where at the US Festival and or, you know, this is our day. And we, you know, the audience start to look like you a little bit. Uh, I think really what we did was I think we made it. Uh, a little bit acceptable and mainstream. Again, if the Stray Cats hit number two, look at what was number three, number four, number five. I think it was Michael Jackson and Madonna, and it was you know we were mainstream. It wasn't some cult band. It we we for that brief moment were were the mainstream. And I think before us, you try to explain. I mean, me personally, like, well, what do you guys do? Really, but we also like modern music, and we we. You know, we like the aggressiveness of punk rock, but we can play, so we like Gene Vincent. But now, if you ask someone to describe another band, if you say, it's like the Stray Cats, they know exactly what you mean. Right. So I think we've become a little bit, you know, have had a dent in pop culture that that way. Now you can use what we, our template to explain the whole thing. Now, now with your, I just quick because I, I was on your website, um, you know, with your clothing, and you always dress different how did what is da vinci clothing is, is that a line you're involved with and you know i mean how did you get involved with them da vinci is a shirt company that's been around since i think the 40s or the 50s that like if you see a lot of pictures of elvis jerry lee ward if you look at kramer from seinfeld those are probably da vinci shirts those cool shirts from the 50s and they've been a shirt company all this time and um I think I have a few original ones. Like if we were in the old days at a thrift store and you managed to find a like Da Vinci shirt, it was like, all right, you know, it was, we were hip to it. And just just earlier this year, a friend of mine who's a big fashionista guy, he um, acquired the rights. It's still a functioning company, tiny, tiny. And he um, he reactivated the brand. And he asked me to take some pictures with his clothes. He said, if it sells, we're partners. If not... We got some free shirts, you know. I said, "Yeah, sure, buddy." So, you know, so, so, so again, it's cool. It's like an old, you know. It's the, it's the fashion equivalent of like when Carl Perkins calls. If like the guy from Da Vinci shirts, like original rockabilly stuff, calls and says, "Hey, we reactivated the company. We get on board." Sure. 
Now, so very cool stuff. Oh yeah, I love I love that look. It's so funny because I actually found this. I found a shirt at the Old Navy once, and it has lobsters, like the Kramer shirt. And every yeah. time I wear that shirt, people are like, "Oh my God, where'd you get that shirt?" Then you have to sit there and go, "Old Navy," you know, because it's, it's not cool. Like saying they've somehow kept the brand. You know, it's almost dormant. But my guy. Chris Wicks, he's a big fashionista guy. He has a company called English Laundry, um, and he loves that stuff. Again, an English guy who was hip to all the American stuff has reactivated the brand, and I'm, I'm with him on it. Now, how did you meet Britt Ackland, and were you aware that she was an international sex symbol when you met her? Um, no, I didn't know who she... Um, we met through a mutual friend in London. Uh, there was a guy who I met... Roger, and he was the manager of the Roxy. And I'd been to LA, like I said, we played the Roxy. Uh, and this was in the interim. I went back to London because we were living in London. Everything was there, kind of thing, kind of thing. Um, and I was living in a hotel because we were gonna. I let my flat go, and we were gonna go back to the states to start. The record just got released. We we're about to start the American, um, the big push, the big, you know expedition and um i knew one guy from la who was he was in london he was visiting and he also knew brit somehow um because he worked at the roxy and he i i can't even remember how they knew each other but um he he introduced us and she came to you know you know where i was staying it was very very immediate kind of thing which i i i don't know happen if it happens more than once or twice in your life um it it was a genuine thing, and I think she knew that I was some, you know, rock and roller, and I knew that she was some actress, but, like, I didn't know know any of the specifics of it, you know. Um, but we just really got along, and, I don't know, we spent a very long time together, and, I mean, our son's 26 years old, uh, and we're still in touch, and she's just a... But it was a different side for me. I mean, I was used to getting my picture taken maybe at a gig or playing the drums, but I was never... How could you really? You're still very young. Be prepared to when you go to the airport, someone takes your picture, or you know, walking out of a nightclub, or so. So, so you know, it's just another experience that I, you know, it was good because it wasn't false because we were really in love and we were married a year later and all that. So it was, it was the real thing. Did you ever think how different, like, just you know, as you said, getting your picture taken at the airport back then? Do you ever think of like how different your life? would have been if you were young guys now and you hit the success with all the social media and all the paparazzi. I mean, do you ever think that just that you sort of dodged a bullet somewhat? Well, I think hmm, I think Stray Cats would make it any time. Yeah, I'm saying, I know, I know, I'm saying that, but if you were, you know, if you were the same, you know, as, as big, you know, as the Stray Cats were, you know, if you were breaking it as big as you broke it back then with all the social media, how would you guys, You guys, it would probably drive you guys up a wall because you'd be plastered everywhere. Yeah, I think that part of it's down to maybe the individual. I was a little bit, maybe I liked it more or I got used to it a little more. And then when I met Britt, it was pretty much an avalanche. I had to learn that world very quickly or just be, or, or get out of it or be annoyed all the time. I, I see. I was even when we were in school. I was the one that liked going to parties and all. That. So for me, I think it suited my personality. Um, I don't know if it's for everybody, but um, the thing that I'm a little bit proud of, if, if you can be proud of that type of thing, 
is that it's genuine because now it doesn't matter. You can make your own fame a little bit, I think, right? Then if someone took your picture at the airport, it was pretty, I mean, you were in a company with, you know, not that you can seek that. You couldn't couldn't seek it out back then. Now if you decide you want to be famous, I think you can probably get to a certain point of it, you know? Yeah, you just go to a restaurant in in Hollywood and walk out and make a little bit of a scene and you're going to be all over TMZ. Yeah, for but the, now there's more outlets again where it's probably a little bit easier. Back then, if they took a picture out in a restaurant, it ran in the newspaper, right? Would, you know, like it would have been in the L.A. Times or the Daily Mirror or the Philadelphia Inquirer. You know, like it'd be a, you know, so you knew if it got there, it was really genuine. And again, at the time, I didn't know any of this. This is all kind of reflect, you know, reflective. Um, it. I don't know if you get more points, but it seems like it counted more then. You know? oh, no, no, totally it does. I mean, that's the difference. Yeah, I'm saying now it's like anyone could be. You guys would be everywhere. Back then, you were truly in the, the things, but now it's like they're, they're so invasive. Back then, it was something that it was special. And you're right. Like if you saw in a in the Philadelphia Inquirer, if you saw like a celebrity was in town and you saw a picture of him, that was something big. Now, if you see something as a picture of a celebrity, you go, eh, you know what I mean? And so, you, I mean, you, you you were on the part when it was cool. I mean, you were when it was hip to be in papers and something special. It was cool. And it was a bit genuine. That really, that was my wife. We did meet and we were in love and we did travel around together. That, that it, like, it was real, you know? I'm sure in the 50s, there might must have been movie studios. They hooked two people up to take their picture. I'm sure that's happened. That's as old as the hills, I'm sure. But again, there weren't that many outlets. I think now it's a little bit more accessible. Like you can do it yourself. There, I don't know if back then there was a DIY for getting in the right. news. You know, like, <laughs> um, which I don't want to be grumpy old guy. I, I think it's fine, you know. If, uh, but I do, you know, the same as making music. Uh, it's... You can do it yourself, and if it's good, it'll get through. But I think it's, um, I think that part of it's a little bit easier. But at the same time, there's so much stuff that if you do get through, it's kind of maybe proves that you, you are good. So there's two parts to it, and I don't want to be grouchy old guy and say it's got to be vinyl and it's got to be a flashbulb, but you know, what I, mean? right. so <laughs> I, I, I get it. I'm just happy that I had my time when I did. Um, I don't know if I'd want to be a new kid starting a band, but I think I totally believe that if the Stray Cats were 18 years old and did the same exact thing, we would make it again that's, because the band, because those guys are really good and it's a unique thing that still hasn't really been um, uh, duplicated. Right. I don't think um, there's a bunch of great rock bands. There's a bunch of great girl singers. There's a bunch of great singer songwriters. There's a bunch of great punk rock guys I don't know of any other one of rockabilly that's gotten through that like like we did so now now what made you decide to write my life as a rockabilly rebel stray cat struts what what made you decide to write your book and how you had offers throughout the years I don't want to go into you know why the band broke up and stuff like that because that's in the book you know what I mean but yeah, everything's in there and there's a lot of other stuff but, that we got you know it's what? It's a good funny book. It's not dark in any way. It's all kind of funny and it's ironic and it's rock and roll. And there's a lot of good names in there. A lot of good, you know, uh, you know, a lot of good scenes. 
What made and you I just make everyone will laugh a little bit? What made you decide now is the time? Because I know it's, it seems like a lot of people. Kenny Aronoff just came out with a book. Carmine Peace just came out with a book. What made you think that okay, now is the time for me to come out with my book? Well, um, it kind of happened in a roundabout way where a friend of mine, um, Stevie Salas, who um, played with Rod Stewart and played with her, you know, he's been around for a long time, just an old true pal of mine. Um, he wrote a book about his adventures in rock and roll and uh, asked me to write a couple of blurbs to put on the back cover. So, I, you know, I just put my rock journalism hat on and, you know, wrote a couple of blurbs. Uh, and... Um, his agent, Dana, Dana Newman is her name, um, she was in charge of my friend Stevie's book, so she saw you know, the blurbs and called me and said, hey, these are really good. Have you ever written, written a book? I said, no, it's one of those things that you always say that you can do, but if you don't do it, you can't get rejected. You know, well, I could have had it if I wanted to. <laughs> you know, so she a little bit um, eh, called my bluff and said, we'll write a couple of chapters. Okay, so it's a proper agent asking me to do it. So I wrote a chapter about Lemmy and me going to the uh, out in London and playing the slot machines at the casino in London, and then skip twenty pages. The end of the night, we're paying the taxi driver in coins. Right. So, but in between that, there's twenty pages of who else was there, what we did, where else we went, and he was my real my um, true pal, Lemmy. You know, so. It, it was a little bit about him and our friendship. So she said, that's a good chapter. Great. So where's my deal? You got another chapter. <sighs> okay. So I wrote another one about uh, about Keith Richard coming to do an session I asked him to do, which was really nice that he did it, you know? And so I told that story. And I starts with me calling Keith Richard because I saw him at a party and then 20 pages later there's and the song turned out really good you know but in between that there's 20 pages of how it went down where we were how I met him so we had two chapters done then and then she took it to the to the publishers you know shopping a record deal a few people came back no and we had two two houses that liked it I couldn't believe it so we went with one and again roll the dice all things being equal um St. Martin's Press, who's a very good house from New York. Um, it was an Irish guy. <laughs> that was the editor. Okay, I'll go with him. <laughs> like the Yankees, and he was from New York. Okay. So, and then and then he had to write it, which took about a year. And it's it's hard work. Anyone who thinks they can write a book, I'm sure you can. It's just hard. you got to put the work in. Again, it's a little bit like the the more I started seeing like rock and roll, the more I got it. You just can't watch the TV and get some quick inspiration and run into the next room and write 80 pages. It doesn't work that way. you got to sit behind the typewriter every day for three, four hours, and eventually, at the end of that three, four hours, every day there's something there. Now, are you, are you happy with the final product? Is it something you can look and go, man, I'm really proud of this work, like you are proud of the music? Is it something so, that you go, this is, you know, this, this was worth all the hard work? Yeah, because it's an accomplishment. Again, it's an original bucket list thing when you were a kid. You know, like, I'll, I'll write a book, I'll make a record, I'll, I'll, I'll meet a hot chick, I'll, you know, have my own type of drumsticks, whatever, you know. Like, of course, everyone says and everyone wants it. And the idea that you did it, to me, that was half the battle. And then, and then you took all these, and, I, and I'm so 
unkind of techie. I was afraid of losing it. I'd save every three sentences that I wrote, and then I had to get into a chapter and put a title. I'm very bad. A couple of times I lost a chapter, and I wanted to just jump off the roof, you know? Um, um, so from seeing that all the way pushed to, you know, a year later, you have it, and there's photographs inside of it, and there's a hard cover, and, and when you open up, there's a blank page, you can sign your name there, and it's like, it's, you know, and then you call your buddies, and uh, there's a lot of really good people who did, um, uh, like, endorsements for me on the back of the book, and it's something different about a book, you can hold it in your hand, you right. know, and, and um, I don't know if it dates back to school or whatever, like, it's a real, but it's the same feeling as when you had your first 45, and it's a vinyl thing, and there's a cover, there's a picture of you on it, and you're holding it. And that's, you know, it's real, I guess. Now, where can people find it at? Everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your neighborhood bookseller, everywhere. Have you done a book tour? Um, I've done some. We did. Um, I did some signings on Long Island and New York. Uh, I did a few in L.A. We did the Book Soup a couple months ago. It was really good. All of our buddies turned up, and there was a... You know, a nice line. I did a little speech and sign sign books, and yeah, I've done I've done a bit. The good thing about a book is that it keeps going. You can keep uh, this this type of book is that it's you know like an old record. You can go and buy it again. And now, in, and we got to wrap up soon. In the near future, you have a few uh, you have a few shows coming up, right? I have a show here in L.A. at the Yost Theater um, on uh, Saturday playing a gig with the Blasters, which would be fun. And um, I'm going to Australia, April. Uh, I'm going to do the Chiller Convention. That's really fun. You go and you sign stuff and you hang out with old, uh, older kind of TV guys that I lo know and love. And, you know, some other musicians are on it. So that's fun. That's in Jersey. Signature, the Chiller Convention, it's called. And that's in April. And, and then stuff. I'm going to Europe for the... Summertime with my buddy Glenn Matlock from the Pistols. He and I have made a record together. And really just kind of stay busy. You know, you do a hundred things and they let you stay in Beverly Hills. Right. <laughs> now, yeah. do you ever look at those videos and go, wow, man, we, we changed stuff? Like when you look back, you know, the Stray Cat strut, do you ever just sit there and, I mean, do you ever, does that go through, ever go through your head that, you know, you really, you're an icon? I mean, you know, a lot of people can't say that, but your music was iconic. As you said, you and you introduced America music rockability to a, a whole generation. You know, I mean, I said I'm 52. That's my, you know, we were the people that were, you know, affected. Yeah, by it. Exactly. Do you ever sit there and go, holy crap, man, I've touched a shitload of people? Once in a while, yes. Now, um, for like kind of the longest time, I don't know if you're embarrassed by it or uh, I, I, I didn't watch it for the you know, longest time. And then you're at it trying to make a living and. But the book caused me to like go into the you know the storage and get all the photographs out and you know I found some great things I'd forgotten and um uh, yeah now now I do and and I'm proud of it because I think you reach a certain age where uh, you know for the longest time you'd be saying a punk rock version of our shucks but 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 now I'm not like that anymore what we did was really cool and I embrace it now and. I'm happy to tell someone that it's good, you know? Um, so, um, yes, I think we made it possible for, like, a lot of people. We made it possible for, say, Da Vinci Shirts to relaunch or for, you know, there's big hot rod tattoo conventions and those kind of lifestyle things that really weren't around before. 
and I'm happy to have been a part of it because we truly still I I love that stuff. I'm happy to be partially responsible for keeping it all going. Cool, man. Well, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad we hooked up. And now, now your, yeah, yeah. your website is slimjimphantom.com. Great website. A lot of information there. And your Twitter is what? Uh, At, I think they're all, yeah, official Slim Jim. I think they're all because there was, an, there was other people who said they were me because I wasn't doing all of it, you know. So right. <laughs> it was, I had to go back and reclaim my identity. Well, but it... But it's all good, kind of within this whole. And like, I just started to do this in like January. I I had the original iPhone. You couldn't even mail a picture on it. Um, I just got all of this stuff, and it's fun. Like, we, you know, speaking about MTV, the f- first day I was on it, I like spoke to Martha Quinn, Alan Hunter, Nina Blackwood, my, all friends. Like, I can't even tell you how many people from the past that I've spoken to, and then on the phone that we were, you know, genuinely pals with. So. What's well, awesome? Facing the internet. Well, I want to. I want to thank you for coming on. People, check them out. If you ever heard of Stray Cats, don't even listen to my show. Because uh, yeah, if you haven't heard of them, uh, I don't know where you've been in the last thirty-five years. Anyway, people, <laughs> follow him. Go to his website. Go to uh, Slim Jim Phantom. Follow me uh, at Cooper Talk. It's at Cooper Talk. I I tweet all the time. You go to my website, CooperTalk.net. Send me an email, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And if you go to my website, you know I have. Got over 590 episodes up. So yeah, keep on listening, people. And seriously, go sit back, go YouTube a stray cat strut, go watch it, have fun. So remember, people, follow Jim, look him up, follow him on Twitter. He tweets. He's out there tweeting. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.